Good afternoon, and welcome to the North Carolina Court of Appeals. I'm Judge Valerie Zachary. Uh, to my right is, is Judge uh, Fred Gore, and to my left is Judge Jefferson Griffin. Assisting us today is uh, or are Senior Deputy Clerk Eddie Sanders and Officer Richard Remillard. On the calendar this afternoon, we have NRA Estate of Corbett 22-526 and 22-618 uh, on appeal from New Hanover County. These cases were consolidated for oral argument with 30 minutes allotted to the executrix appellant and 30 minutes allotted to the caveator wife. Have you reserved your time for rebuttal? Okay, all right. You may proceed. May it please the court. I am Tom Myrick. With me is my colleague, Elena Mitchell. Uh, we are with Moore and Van Allen, and we represent the ex executrix appellant. Um, as I just mentioned, we would like to split the time. I would like to reserve 15 minutes. Um, Ms. Mitchell will have 10, and then we'd like to reserve five at the end. This, this case is about the will of Scott Corbett as part of his estate plan, which also included a trust. Um, the trust has not been challenged in this case. We respectfully request this court to reverse the judgment entered by the trial judge and enter judgment for the executrix for three reasons. First, the judgment as it now stands sets a dangerous precedent for attorneys and CPAs who already have a fiduciary duty to their clients <clears throat> that they may be sued. Uh, and it would also damage the reputation to be accused of breach of fiduciary duty when they're just simply doing their job. Secondly, uh, the caveator's evidence was insufficient, one, to overcome the strong presumption in North Carolina that everyone has testamentary capacity to make a will. Even an insane person can make a will in a lucid moment. And two, caveator failed to meet her burden of showing undue influence. The only four people that were in the room when Scott signed his will and trust, all testified that he was, cap he was competent and was not unduly influenced. Third, um, Caviator signed an oath in which she, quote, swore, so help me God, that she believed the 2016 will at issue here was in fact Scott's last will and testament and that she would, quote, well and truly execute the terms of the 2016 will. Caveator should be judicially stopped from then filing a caveat and challenging the veracity of the will, nearly a year after she signed the oath. Uh, in the alternative, Executrix requests this court to remand the case back to the trial court for a new trial in particular because there was evidence that was kept away from the jury 
that we will argue was relevant and material and should have been considered by the jury. In particular, the caveator received outside of probate $1.3 million in cash that the jury never heard about. Now, the, the Corbett family um, uh, was in the business, one of the businesses the Corbett family was in was in making wooden crates to transport fruits and vegetables. Pallets? And that, oh, pallets? Pallets. I think there were, I think there were pallets as well as the, um, the actual wooden crates. Mm -hmm. And to, as part of that business, the Corbett started accumulating uh, undeveloped land for its timber. Uh, at, in fact, at one time, the Corbett's were the largest private landowner in North Carolina. This land was passed down from one generation to the next, um, and Wilbur Corbett, who was Scott's dad, uh, created a similar will and trust where the will put the Corbett family assets into a trust for the sole and exclusive benefit of his wife, Joanne. For her, for her lifetime, and then to her children, which was the Scott and his three sisters. Scott was familiar with this. He was co-trustee of his father's will, estate, and he was also, um, I mean, he was co-executrix of the estate. He was also co-trustee with his mother on the trust. Scott's 2016 will at issue here is similar to his father's in that it left all of Scott's assets in trust for the sole benefit of Caviator for her lifetime, and then upon her death, back to the Corbett family. Scott never had any children. Neither Scott nor Caviator had any children. Uh, both Scott's will and his father will, father's will provided that the trustees would pay all the income of the trust to the wife, in this case, the Caviator, and allowed for the invasion of principal as necessary. So, to, I say that because the entire amount of the trust was available for Caviator, for her benefit. Before he married the Caviator in 1995, uh, he signed a will in 1994 that left all of his assets back to his family, back, back to the Corbett family. Um, after marrying Caviator, Scott changed his will in 1997 um, to leave his personal property to Caviator and then the Corbett business assets in trust uh, for the benefit of Caviator during her lifetime and then back to his family. So you can see that Scott had a very, um, I think, loyalty to the family and these assets that came f to him from the family, he wanted them to be used for the benefit of Caviator for her lifetime and back to the family. On May 16, 2012, Scott was diagnosed with stage four colorectal cancer. The ne very next day, May 17th, Scott was given six weeks to live, pick up the phone, call the same lawyer that drew up the 2016 will, and ask him to draft a new will that left everything to the caveator outright, which was about $2 million at the time. Scott's mother passed away unexpectedly in December of 2014, and then that meant that Scott and his sisters inherited about $100 million in mostly undeveloped land, timberland. And Scott's share of that was $23.6 Now, 
this was a drastic change in his wealth. So the 2012 will was dealing with about $2 million in assets, which he left all to his wife, caveator. His mother dies, he inherits another $23.6 million. He immediately goes and talks to his financial advisor and attorney, uh, Mr. Warwick and Mr. Morgan, and decides he wants to change his estate plan. And then that's when he decided to leave the corporate family assets, or all of his assets, including the corporate family assets, in trust, because he knew there'd be almost $2 million, $1.3 million, going out right to her in cash. Was there ever any indication of why the attorney and CPA would want him to change his will? I mean, I understand they were not beneficiaries of the will, but right. was, there, was there any other incidental benefit to them? Not that, not that I know that's in the record. Mm -hmm. um, they got no compensation. In fact, I think the North Carolina statute The idea that someone can sue the decedent's lawyer and accountant, CPA, for undue influence when they're simply advising their client creates a threat to all the CPAs uh, and attorneys in North Carolina. Uh, in fact, one of my law partners, Caitlin Horn, who's a member of the American College of Trust and States Council, uh, when this verdict came out and the judgment was entered, <clears throat> she said she'd have to revisit whether or not she ever prepares a will again. Because every time she prepares a will, there's the opportunity, at least, to be sued under this case law, under the current case law. Uh, this case is the law of this case. Well, I know that, you know, it, you know, as an attorney, when you're speaking with your client, you're often attempting to influence their behavior by giving them legal advice. You know, I suggest you do this, or, I, you know. And, and that happened in this case. I mean, there was recommendations, although I will say the caveator in, in their brief say that Warwick determined this. I would, I would urge the court to site check all the briefs carefully or ask their clerks to because I ran into this several times. The brief says Warwick determined this. The actual testimony was that he recommended it, and I'm sure that he did, like any other lawyer or CPA, recommended to his client what he thought was the best course of action. Well, you know, what, what would you say is the difference between influencing your client and unduly influencing your client? Well, undue influence, you don't have to have bad intent. Um, it, it is undue influence is substituting the will of the influencer uh, instead of it being an act of their own. And in this case, that simply didn't happen. I mean, it, Scott was familiar with wills and trusts. He, his father had it. Uh, he had it in 1997. Uh, and then after he inherited $23.6 million, he went back to that. So this was not something that was pushed on him that he was unfamiliar with. <clears throat> the other thing is, uh, all the testimony in the case said that Scott never did anything that he didn't want to do. I mean, he was described as bullheaded at one point, I think. Um, so I don't think Mr. Morgan or Mr. Warwick um, and there's nothing in the record that suggests that they uh, unduly influenced him. With regard to judicial estoppel, how did the wife gain an unfair advantage um, by presenting the 2016 will for probate? Well, I, you know, and then, and then, and then um, filing a caveat. 
how did she gain? Did, did, how did she gain any unfair advantage oh, by doing that? I, I don't know that she gained an unfair advantage, but she got um, $23.6 million outright as opposed to um, in trust. Now, the, the, the advantage that she gained is, is that she'd already taken a position that the will was valid and that the money should go into trust. In fact, she represented that to the court, to the clerk, of course. Uh, she then spent a year as co-executrix, you know, doing her job for the estate, and then, this, then learned for the first time that she was not going to have control, of, complete control of this $23.6 million. Uh, and therefore, she decided to, to file the caveat. So, uh, yeah, but I don't understand how her having presented the, um, the will for probate gave her any kind of unfair advantage. Well, the, the unfair advantage that the caveator got from presenting the will to probate, she, she was allowed to, to take two different factual positions. So, you know, that, I think that's the basis of the estoppel is that when you misrepresent to the court and you gain that advantage of being able to get the assets, get full control of all the assets later, as opposed to not having control and that being the reason that you signed the oath to start with, uh, I, I, I would view that as an unfair advantage. Uh, was the estate prejudiced? Excuse me? Was the estate prejudiced by her presenting the will for probate and, well, then, and then caveating the will? Well, it, it was clearly because that's why we're here. Uh, you know, by filing this caveat, by changing her position, uh, and, and instead of saying and supporting the will, she now files a caveat. The estate is paying for all this. Well, I think I guess what I meant was was she was she uh, was there any prejudice to the estate from the unfair advantage that she gained that that you maintain that she gained? I, I think there is, in the sense that we have had to defend on behalf of the estate. This caveat, which is but, but you would have to if she had never if she had never presented the will for probate, you would still have to defend the um, a caveat if she had decided to caveat it. Right. The assets going into trust. Um, the will was very simple. It was the wording of it was everything goes to trust, and that was the it for the will. So the estate under the original two thousand or the the, the the will that's been challenged in this case, um, did not have to deal with anything but just simply put the assets in trust. And now that's been, now the estate has had to deal with this. I mean, the estate is still open, so. How do you respond to the other side's argument that the validity of a will is a mixed question of law and fact? That's what the cases say, that it is law and fact. Mm -hmm. So taking a position like she did, involves taking a position, changing your view uh, of facts. So the law in North Carolina requires, in order to have testamentary capacity, it requires that one comprehend the natural objects of their bounty, understands the kind, nature, and extent of his property, knows the manner in which he desires the act to take effect, and realize the effect the act will have upon uh, his property. All of those, there's evidence of all of those in this case. Um, in addition, North Carolina has a strong presumption that everyone has those four elements. Curiously, um, 
caveat toward never challenge the trust. It's the same standard as the will. Um, challenge the will, didn't challenge the trust. It is caveator's burden to prove that one of those four elements is missing, and they have not in this case. They've got lots of testimony of generalized uh, lack of capacity before he signed the will and after he signed the will, but there was only four people that were in the room when he actually signed the will. All four of them testified that he was lucid, had conversations uh, with them. <clears throat> in fact, one of, the, one of the witnesses, or actually it was the notary, uh, who was a work for Mr. Morgan, the attorney, had seen Scott coming in out of his office from time to time, and Scott had asked her about how her cheerleading was going. She, she was a cheerleading coach. Um, and when she walked into the room that day when he signed the will, that's the first thing he asked her about. Did all these folks testify at the trial? All four of them testified. All four of them said that he was <coughs> competent to sign a will. That there was, that, in fact, Mrs. Uh, Dorman, I think it was, um, said that um, uh, that she wouldn't have signed it. She wouldn't have signed as a witness if he. Well, you agree that jurors are in the best uh, best position to judge credibility of witnesses. Well, would they have all the evidence? And you're you're saying the evidence they didn't have was the the insurance policy. They didn't have the insurance policy or the IRA, which was basically the. the close to the amount of the estate that, he, that she would have gotten in 2012 in the, in the will that they're now arguing for. I see that my time is up. So if there are no other questions, I'll turn it over to Ms. Mitchell. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you May it please the court. After the trial of this matter, Caviator and Executrix each petitioned the trial court to allow payment of their attorney's fees and costs by the estate. <clears throat> I'll remind the court that the assets of the estate here are worth approximately $25 million. Executrix then filed a notice of appeal of the underlying caveat. After accusing Executrix of, and I quote, playing with estate house money, end quote, the trial court rendered an order reducing the amount of fees to be paid to her counsel and granting caveator all her requested fees. Executrix then filed a second notice of appeal of the fee order. For the second appeal, we ask that this court vacate the trial court's order on fees and costs and remand the party's fee and cost petitions for a subsequent determination after resolution of these issues on appeal. Whether a trial court has subject matter jurisdiction over a matter is reviewed de novo by an appellate court. A decision under General Statute Section 6-21 to award fees as costs to propounder, like executrix here, is reviewed for abuse of discretion. A decision to allow fees as costs to a caveator also is reviewed for abuse of discretion, but there's one extra step. The appellate court must first confirm that the trial court only awarded fees to the caveator after first finding that the caveat had substantial merit. Here, it was an abuse of discretion for the trial court to make a substantial merit determination and to award caveator fees before, well, while the caveat was pending appeal. There's an even more important threshold reason why the trial court's ruling on caveator's fee petition must be vacated, and that's because the trial court lacked jurisdiction to enter it. 
Caviatore filed a memorandum of additional authority last week citing the Gauss case in support of her argument that this court may not consider our appeal as to the ruling on Caviatore's fee petition because of how our notice of appeal was worded. We disagree for the reasons cited in our reply brief, but also note that Gauss does not square with prior decisions of this court, including Evans, which we cited in our reply brief. More importantly, Gauss does not preclude this court from considering our jurisdictional challenge to the ruling um, to allow fees to caviator because the issue of jurisdiction over the subject matter of proceeding may be raised at any time in an action including on appeal. And it is the duty of this court to vacate a judgment ex marimoto if it determines that jurisdiction was lacking at the trial level. General Statute Section 1-294 holds that a perfected appeal stays all further proceedings in the court below when those further proceedings involve matters embraced in the perfected appeal. In consolidating these appeals under Rule 40, this court correctly concluded that these appeals involve common issues of law. That's the standard for consolidating cases under Rule 40. Here, because our first appeal was perfected before the trial court entered the fee order, this court has concluded the appeals involve common issues, or in other words, that the trial court's ruling on the fee order and our second appeal embrace matters covered in the first appeal, it follows the trial court lacked jurisdiction to award fees to caviator. To be clear, we are not appealing the ruling as to Executrix's fee motion on jurisdictional grounds. The trial court had jurisdiction to rule on Executrix's fee petition pursuant to the Dunn case, and more specifically because General Statute Section 6-21 does not require a trial court to first find substantial merit in a propounder's defense of a caveat. In July 1981, the General Assembly amended um, Section 6-21 to add the requirement that a trial court first find substantial merit in a caveat before awarding fees to a caveator. That's you, why. Do you, do you contend that you have to, that you must win the case in order to show substantial merit? No, you don't have to actually prevail to have substantial merit. Um, we just don't think where this case should never have gone to a jury um, that there could be substantial merit in it. Um, and so because of this amendment in 1981 to the statute, that's why pre-1981 cases cited by Dunn and by Caviator in her brief state that decisions on fee petitions of caviators are not stayed pending appeal of an underlying caveat. Because before 1981, there was no requirement to first find substantial merit in a caveat before awarding a caviator fees. In other words, pre-1981 cases, Dunn, and the line of cases relying on Dunn have been superseded by that amendment to Section 6-21. And it is no longer the case that a trial court has jurisdiction to rule on a caveator's fee petition when the underlying caveat is on appeal, because whether a caveat has substantial merit is inextricably intertwined with resolution of that appeal. The portion of the fee order ruling on Executrix's fee motion also must be vacated because it constitutes an abuse of discretion. Again, after accusing Executrix of, quote, playing with the state house money, the trial court then reduced the amount of fees to be awarded to her counsel. The trial court's unfortunate word choice suggests it was prejudiced against our client, and it's reversible error to base a decision on bias against a party. The fee order also incorporates an unconstitutional application of General Statute Section 6-21. By reducing the hourly rates of Charlotte attorneys, 
and capping them at $500 an hour, solely because the caveat was filed in New Hanover County, the trial court applied Section 6-21 in one county so as to discriminate against attorneys from another county, constituting a local act. The trial court also abused its discretion in reducing the amount of fees um, to be awarded to counsel for executrix and again in capping those rates at $500 an hour based on a county-centric determination contrary to law. North Carolina Revised Rule of Professional Conduct 1.5a lists eight factors to be considered when looking to the reasonableness of attorney's fees and the trial court here placed too much emphasis on a single factor. No statute or controlling case has previously restricted the term locality in subsection A3 to mean only the county in which litigation is pending and no wider area. Does that rule say how you have to weigh those factors? No, it just lists them to be considered, but here it just seemed like the trial court really reduced fees just because they looked at what might be allowed only in New Hanover County. Didn't think any wider area could possibly be considered, but that's just not, the case law doesn't hold that. Um, if we draw a county by county distinction in cases where fees may be awarded, we are placing a burden on the courts and on attorneys to determine reasonable rates to charge for various categories of cases in every single one of the 100 counties across North Carolina. We also risk discouraging attorneys from taking cases in certain counties and ultimately restricting clients' options in terms of choice of counsel. Well, did the trial court actually cap attorney's fees for lawyers from Charlotte at $500 an hour, or was it, oh, or did the trial court do that in consideration of the difficulty of the case presented? That he did note um, that there were complex issues of law and fact involved here, um, but one way you can look at this ruling, at the most he allowed was $500 an hour for any of our attorneys without explanation of why that number was chosen. Um, and so I, I don't want to cut into my rebuttal time. With your honor's indulgence, I'll, I'll finish answering the question and make um, a couple final points. But um, I, I would just say um, that is another reason why the trial court's ruling on executrix's fee petition constitutes abuse of discretion because he did not explain how he re readjusted our rates. Um, Caviator hypothesizes in her brief that they adjusted them by comparing rates of attorneys of approximate um, years of practice, but the trial court did not explain that, nor did he explain why he picked $500 for Mr. Myrick. And North Carolina case law holds that trial courts are required to include specific findings in their rulings about how it arrived at figures to be awarded. Thank you so much. For Thank you. May it please the court, I'm Jimmy Adams from the Brooks Pierce Law Firm in Greensboro along with Dan Colston and my partner Thomas Varnum. And we have the honor of representing Diana Corbett, the caveator in this matter. Um, Your Honor, let me speak first to the last thing that Ms. Mitchell said. I'm gonna go a little bit out of order. 
but since it's fresh in my mind and fresh in yours, um, at page 188 of the record, um, there was attached an email from Judge Carmichael, who of course had been the, the trial judge and sat through all three weeks, um, considered the JNOV and directed verdict motions and the new trial motions, and then separately considered the fee petitions. And he clearly stated at page 188 of the record that based on the comparable hour rates for partners and associates that the court has accepted as reasonable and allowed for the attorneys for the caveator, that's the basis for setting the rates. It is an it's a misrepresentation of the record to suggest that Judge Carmichael didn't specifically state his basis in his reasoning. His basis in his reasoning was that the locality of New Hanover County, based on the affidavits from the local New Hanover uh, lawyers as to what was reasonable and appropriate, as compared to the affidavit from Ms. Arias and Mr. Myrick is about rates generally, he, in his discretion, and it's an abuse of discretion standard, elected to apply the same rates for the executrix council as was applied for the caveators council, and that was the basis. And there's nothing abusive about that. The standard for abuse of discretion is there manifest disregard, is there any reasonable basis at all? And page 188 of the record is absolutely crystal clear that he had a good faith, um, reasonable basis for setting the rates that he sat, set. So, Your Honors, I go back to the beginning. This case was litigated for four years. We had a three-week jury trial in New Hanover County in which 12 good citizens of that county heard all of the evidence. And Judge Griffin, yes, every single possible person that had anything to do with this estate and this, um, this will, the, the trust that was at issue, testified except for Scott Corbett himself. Obviously, he wasn't there to testify. But everyone else that could have had anything to do was called and testified. Um, his wife testified, his sister testified, his lawyer testified, his financial person testified, all of the people in the room testified, his business partner and cousin testified, and one of the individuals that worked with him testified. And significantly, Your Honors, two experts testified on our behalf and one expert on behalf of the executrix all testified and the jury heard it all and after considering all of the evidence and all of the objections that were taken care of those 12 good people in new hanover county concluded that scott corbett lacked testamentary capacity on september 12 2016 and that he had been unduly influenced in executing that will and therefore the will that was signed on um, september 12 2016 was not scott corbett's last will and testament Counsel, so if there's competing evidence cutting both ways um, in a trial, who, who is the, the right fixed party to evaluate that? What's the case law say on that? So thank you, Your Honor. The, the standard on a motion for JNOV is that the, the non-moving party gets the benefit of all the inferences and all of the facts have to be viewed in our favor. And so... In a first matter, the jury decides. But once the jury has decided, the standard for this court is to take all of the evidence, look at it as much in favor as is reasonable and possible, and give us all inferences. And then most importantly, the standard is as long as there is a scintilla, more than a scintilla of evidence, which is just a little bit of evidence, that's enough. And the, this court, any appellate court, essentially defers to the jury because the jury heard it all, they heard all the witnesses, they saw all the people, they saw all the documents. And that's exactly what th is the, the situation here. This jury heard everything, and as a result 
of that standard, Judge Gore. Okay, no, we're, we're fine. We're fine. I want to make sure. We're <laughs> no, something fell down over here. As a result of that standard, our Supreme Court has said that reversing a JNOV or even granting a JNOV should be cautiously and sparingly granted. That's based from as long ago as 1985 and before that. And that there is a heavy burden in this case on the executrix to overturn a jury verdict. So with respect to the, the two factual issues that the executrix raises, the issue of capacity and the issue of undue influence, that's the standard. Is there a more than a scintilla, and a scintilla is not much, of evidence to support those verdicts? And the, the clear answer here is absolutely yes. Judge Carmichael considered that on his JNOV motion. The jury considered all the issues, and you can tell from the transcript, they were not out very long to, to reach that decision. And so the, the burden on the executrix is very high and has not been sustained here. If you, if you read the arguments in the briefs, and candidly, hearing Mr. Myrick this afternoon, they want to re-argue the facts, which is fine. But that's what we have juries for. We, you make your arguments to the jury. He made his argument to the jury. I made my argument to the jury, and the jury concluded that there was lack of capacity and that there was a lack of, and that there was undue influence and set the wills aside. Was there any indication of what motivated Mr. Warwick and uh, allegedly motivated Mr. Warwick and, uh, and Mr. Morgan? Well, yes, Your Honor. There's, I would say there was plenty of evidence on that point. First of all, Mr. Warwick indicated, well, let me back up, Judge Zachary. The evidence was in our favor that the idea to put everything in trust in 2015 came from Mr. Warwick. Scott Corbett had signed a will in 2012, leaving everything to Diana free of trust. And even the prior will, the 1997 will, did not leave family assets in trust. The only thing that was in trust in that will, and if you look at the record and see that the will, was his interest in the partnership Corbett Package Company. All of his interest in Corbett Industries, all of his interest in Corbett Farming and the other Corbett entities, anything contingent was not in trust. And so what the evidence showed was that Mr. Warwick contacted Scott Corbett and said, I think you ought to put your assets in trust. Mr. Warwick then, and it's in the record, a series of emails back and forth with Mr. Morgan where he and Mr. Morgan discussed what should be in the trust, what should not be in the trust. Mr. Morgan prepared a, a draft, sent it to Mr. Warwick with a bunch of questions. Mr. Warwick emailed back answering the questions. Scott Corbett didn't answer those questions. Bob Warwick answered those questions. And this went back and forth for some period of time until the, the trust was pre presented to Scott Corbett. And the email in the record from Bob Warwick says that he told Scott he should go ahead and sign it even though it wasn't perfect, and even though there were blanks. There were blanks for if all of the contingent beneficiaries fail, who would you leave it to? Usually, you know, a, a, some sort of charity. Who are going to be the, the, uh, the trustees of the trust? Those blanks were there to be filled in by someone. They were never filled in. Scott didn't sign it. In fact, and this is one of the, the things that's, I think we left it out of our brief, and it's certainly not in the executrix's brief. Bob Warwick took detailed notes of every single me meeting that he had with Scott Corbett. 
Richard Morgan took notes of his meetings. After that May 15 meeting where Warwick said, here, Scott, here's a draft. The evidence was that draft document ended up in Scott's office in a corner under four bins behind a chair next to a filing cabinet. And the evidence from his cousin was that anything that Scott was working on was on his desk. After May of 2015, there were no conversations between Scott and Bob Warwick about that trust, no conversations about Scott with Scott and Richard Morgan about that trust other than one time when Morgan said, Scott, what about the trust? And the evidence is Scott did not respond. Okay, so I, I, you know, I understand that Mr. Warwick instigated, or, you know, instigated the preparation of the will, but what would motivate him to do that? What motivated him, Your Honor, is he testified that it is his practice to place assets of wealthy people into trust. It's what he did with Scott's dad. It's what he wanted to do with Scott. He, I have absolutely, I mean, the evidence probably was Bob Warwick was doing what Bob Warwick thought was best for Scott. But that's not the standard. The standard is what did Scott want to do? And undue influence is a substitution of one person's mind for the, the mind of the person signing the will. And the, the evidence, as the jury found, was crystal clear that it was Bob Warwick who came up with the idea for the trust. But, Your Honor, I, I think the, the, the real evidence of the motivation is that on September the 12th, it had been 15 months since there had been any conversation about this trust. Bob Warwick called Richard Morgan that morning after hearing that Scott may be dying and said, Morgan, that trust that we looked at 15 months ago, pull it back up on your computer. Let me tell you how to fill in these blanks. Now I want you to prepare a pour over will. And there's no evidence that there's any conversation about the pour over will in any of the, Warwick said, yeah, we talked about it. But there's, there's no, in none of those notes was there a reference to a pour over will. Then let's go to the hospital, meet me at the hospital and we'll have these documents signed. So in 2012, Scott called his lawyer, and the notes from his lawyer are in the record. This is what I want to do. This is how I want to do it. He called him on May 16, 2012. He called him back on May 17, 2012. Then he came to the office with his wife, his mother, his cousin, and his future sister-in-law, his family, and they executed that 2012 will. Scott was completely out of his mind on September 12, 2016, as evidenced by the record. The medication that he was on, our experts have testified to that. There's ample evidence that he did not understand what was going on. But the thing that is no one has said, Scott did not call his lawyer and say, come up here and bring me these documents. Scott did not call Warwick and say, come bring me these documents. Scott did not know anybody was coming. Scott did not know these documents were coming. Scott had never seen that will in the form, well, he'd never seen the will, period. And he'd only seen the trust in a draft form with a bunch of blanks. And the evidence is from his lawyer, he did not read the document. 
But yet the evidence is Scott read everything. The evidence is that Scott was there for an hour and they didn't give him the document to read during the hour where they were waiting for the third witness. And the evidence is that nobody read the documents to Scott. And then after they were signed, they were put in Morgan's briefcase and they left with no copies. The only copy that anyone has evidence of is that it was emailed to Scott four days later. And the only evidence is Scott did not open the email. So, Your Honor, it's a long-winded answer to say the evidence of motivation is that Scott Corbett had no notion that this was ever going to happen. He didn't plan it. He didn't ask for it. Morgan was the driving force behind it. That's the evidence of the motivation. And the motivation was to do for Scott what he had done for Scott's father. So, Your Honor, with respect to undue influence, I think it is crucially, uh, it is crucial that the court recognize, which I know it does, that the elements of undue influence as set forth in the Andrews case doesn't say anything about accepting fiduciaries or lawyers or accountants or anyone of that nature. They're not excluded. The elements are simple. A person who is subject to influence, that was Scott, he was sick. An opportunity to exert influence, they came to the hospital when he was um, on his deathbed and otherwise incapacitated. A disposition, doesn't even have to be motivation, but the disposition is evident from the facts and then a result indicating undue influence. There's nothing there indicating that you have to have an ill motive or a bad motive. In fact, the evidence is, I mean, the, the law from the Jones case says that it does not require moral turpitude or a bad or improper motive. It may be exerted even by a person with the best of motives. So, because the issue of undue influence is, is it my will or is it somebody else's? So, Judge Zachary, you asked a question earlier about influence versus undue influence. Well, if I'm preparing a will and my client comes to me and says, I want to do this and this and this and this and this. And I say, okay, well, let me explain. If you do this, this happens. If you do this, this may happen. You may need to think about these things. But ultimately, they make the decision. That is a far cry. Well, so they make the decision. We prepare a will. We send it to them. We give them a chance to read it. We have questions. They can ask us things. That's a far cry from never seeing it in the first place. Here, sign this. We're not even going to read it to you. And so I would, I would say whether you're an accountant or a lawyer or anyone else, under these set of facts, it's undue influence irrespective of anything else. Garden variety situation, you won't have it. But under these facts, the jury found that it was undue influence. Your Honor, with respect to the, the issue of capacity, I think it's um, significant that what the, what the executrix argument seems to be to, to me is that they want to say that the test for capacity is what happens at the moment the pen hits the paper. And that, that means that the only people that are relevant to determination of whether or not a testator or testatrix has capacity are the people in the room. And, and that's what you heard Mr. Myrick argue is that those four people that were in the room, they said that they thought that Scott Corbett had, um, was lucid and understand what he was, what he was doing. There's no case law to support 
that narrow reading of the law of capacity. And I would su submit that the reason that they are arguing an effort to shrink the law is because they don't have any evidence that is falls outside of that one hour with those four individuals, two of which are the undue influencers, one of which is Mr. Morgan's receptionist, and Ms. Melton was the receptionist for a client of Mr. Warwick. So they're all kind of related to each other by relationship and friend to Mr. Warwick and Mr. Morgan. The law in North Carolina is absolutely crystal clear that reasonable amount of time both before and after the execution is relevant material to whether a testator has capacity. I mean, even the Hall case goes back for two years. Phillips case talks about it being months. Our evidence is hours and minutes at most days. If that's not specific, I don't know what is. I mean, the evidence is that Scott Corbett came to the hospital in extreme pain, that he was septic, that he immediately went on opioids that he had not been on before that. The, the medical record is clear. The testimony from Diana was clear. Scott was not taking opioids because he was not having a pain problem. He was having delusions. He was having hallucinations. His cousin the day before said that he was basically completely out of his mind. The day of the will signing, the nurse said he failed a neurological test. He was confused. He didn't know what he was doing. She would not have let him sign documents if she had known. Scott's own words when he got to Duke was that he couldn't remember what had happened in the last week and a half. His, his doctor, after he saw him, said that Scott was confu more confused than he'd been. I mean, the evidence here is just replete. Plus, we have experts. And in none of the other cases that I saw, was there any expert testimony where we had two experts that testified that in their medical opinion and in with respect to one that was a psychologist, in her opinion, at the time Scott signed the will, he didn't have the ability to understand what he was doing, which is in effect the same definition of capacity. That is more than a scintilla to survive a JNOV motion and for this court to affirm. Um, Your Honor, with respect to the judicial estoppel argument, I think I heard Mr. Myrick concede that whether something is a will is a mixed question of law and fact. The Shepard case is directly on point on that. In that case, the Court of Appeals said because it's a mixed question of law or fact as to whether something is a will, judicial estoppel doesn't even apply. And I think the other thing that you have to think about, Your Honors, is the argument that by signing an oath, you have therefore forever foreclosed yourself from being able to caveat a will changes the standard for judicial estoppel, which is one of discretion, discretion in order to protect the courts, and made a bright line legal test that once you have signed that document that says an oath, you are forever foreclosed. Well, Judge Gorham, at summary judgment, elected not to apply judicial estoppel. Judge Carmichael, both at directed verdict and JNOV, in their discretion, elected not to apply judicial estoppel. And I think it's significant, again, there are cases that we have cited where caveators had previously signed oaths and were still allowed to caveat wills, admittedly under different facts. I'm, I'm not suggesting that any of those cases are exactly the same facts. But if a court had wanted to say it's a bright line rule, those cases would have 
would have compelled a bright line rule. I mean, even in the Covington case, the court required the um, caveator to go back and resign from the estate, but then allowed the caveat to go forward. But the point there is that a caveat, I mean, judicial estoppel is to protect the, the courts. In this situation, after the caveat was filed, because these things were done simultaneous, Ms. Corbett filed a motion with the clerk to withdraw by statute, which is allowed. The clerk allowed it, and the executrix consented to it after the caveat had already been filed. Um, and, and the other thing I would note, Sean, is it, it says, the oath says, I believe, and belief is inherently not a factual question anyway. It's a matter of opinion, which under the, the fraud jurisprudence of North Carolina is not considered to be a fact either. Um, Your Honors, with respect to the, the evidence issue, I think Judge Carmichael, in his discretion um, under Rule 403, concluded that it would be unduly prejudicial to allow the evidence about the insurance and the 401k, especially in light of the testimony of Violet Price, who was proffered by the executrix, that all of those decisions had ha happened in the early 2000s, um, long before even the 2012 will was executed, long before the 2016 will was executed, and there was no discussion between, no record discussion between Scott and anyone Morgan or Warwick about those elements in connection with the preparation of the trust in 2015 that was not signed. And of course, no discussion with anybody in 2016 because Scott Corbett didn't talk to anybody in 2016. The documents just showed up and got signed. So they're not relevant to the issues on capacity of understanding those things that need to be understood. They're not relevant on the issues of substantial prejudice, I mean, of undue influence. But more importantly, even if this court were to find that they were relevant, and you're supposed to give great deference to Judge Carmichael because he was there and heard all the evidence um, on the relevancy issue, it's an abuse of discretion standard for um, 403. And he stated his reasoning, which was he was afraid that the jury would be unduly influenced, unduly persuaded that 1.3 million would be enough for somebody <clears throat> and not look at the facts as they were. Was the evidence admitted during Mr. Warwick's testimony? So, it, I guess the technical answer to that, Judge Zachary, was no. Um, Mr. Warwick blurted out, after being instructed um, by counsel for um, executrix, not to mention the fact that there was a $500,000 policy that was going to Ms. Corbett. He blurted that out. There was a motion to strike, which was allowed. Okay. He then blurted it out again. And there was another motion to strike, which was allowed. And after the jury was out, Judge Carmichael commented on the record that he believed that Mr. Warwick was intentionally violating his order in blurting it out, certainly the second time. I don't remember the exact words that he used, but that was the gist of it. So the jury was improperly, but nevertheless, aware of at least $500,000 of that um, insurance money 
during the time that they were deliberating. We trust that they followed the judge's instruction and refused to consider it, but it did come out, Your Honors. So unless Your Honors have any other questions about the, what I would consider the substantive appeal, let me move to the, to the issues raised in the fee appeal briefly. And again, I think what the executrix is trying to argue um, is for a change in the law, is while saying substantial merit does not equal um, prevailing party, that's in effect what they're arguing. They want substantial merit to change to a prevailing party status. I mean, the, the Bateshore case from 2010 is absolutely crystal clear that the court has already held, and I'm quoting, that a trial court may enter an award of attorney's fees following notice of appeal from a prior judgment in a caveat proceeding. I mean, Judge Carmichael absolutely had jurisdiction under Bateshore and under Dunn and under all of the cases that have held that substantial merit is not prevailing party, and he said so. I mean, in his order, both the actual order that he signed as well as the email that he sent in connection with the preparation of the order, he said unequivocally that he was finding that there was, some, some, um, based upon the record, the evidence presented at trial, and the arguments of counsel, the court expressly finds and concludes caveat has substantial merit. Even if caveator had not ultimately prevailed at trial, the court would still conclude that the caveat had substantial merit based upon consideration of the evidence presented at trial. I mean, he said in his discretion that there was substantial merit, and therefore, no matter what this court might do on the merits, there was substantial merit. Under 1-294, that falls within that careful exception. So both as a matter of law, Judge Carmichael had jurisdiction, but I would submit even because of the way he ruled factually, he recognized, because this issue had been raised, that he had jurisdiction. And he said, I'm going to give fine substantial merit no matter um, notwithstanding. Um, with respect to, and I'm getting close here, Your Honors, I've got about three minutes. So we would submit that there's, he absolutely had jurisdiction to consider that and that he was um, proper in doing so. And the argument then that there was no substantial merit in, depends entirely on the notion that, well, if this court should conclude that the matter should have never gone to the jury, then there's no substantial merit. Well, that by definition is prevailing party. Um, and so we would submit that Judge Carmichael covered the waterfront on that. It's an abusive discretion standard for him. And he, in his discretion, determined that there was substantial merit and the fee award should be proper. And there's been no challenge of the fee award itself, the dollars. There's only, the only challenge is to the substantial merit issue. Um, but we would also submit that the, this court lacks jurisdiction to consider that issue. Um, we cited the Gauss case most recently in our subsequent authority we filed last week. And what the Gauss case is, it's the latest decision in which the issue of what is appealed comes up. The appeal in this case is, the notice of appeal is crystal clear. 
that they are appealing the order dated March 31, 2022, and I quote, reducing the requested attorney's fees for counsel for executrix after May 31, 2020. Under uh, appellate rule 3D, you've got, if you don't have to be precise, but if you elect to be precise, you're bound basically by how precise you are. And the question is, can it be fairly inferred, and that's the, the case law from Von Rahm and the two Smith cases, as well as the Gauss case, can it be fairly inferred from the notice that they're covering these additional issues? And we would submit that it is not fairly inferred for primarily for this reason. Well, number one, they say specifically they're appealing from the fact that Judge Carmichael reduced their fees. But there were three motions. There was a motion by the executrix for fees. There was a motion by the caveator for fees. But then there was also a motion by the propounder for fees, the propounders. So Ms. Um, Melissa Corbett and Ms. Rebecca McGowan, they were separate propounders. They filed a separate motion. So what I, what I hear is that, well, we, were, we were, had the potential to do all three, but we only did two. And so you should infer, it's fair to infer that although we only mentioned one, we were really doing two, but we weren't doing three. I, I think that's the... Counsel, how do, how do you balance the fact that there was just one order, even though addressing the three different fees, but it appears to be one order from Judge Foreman? Your Honor, I've, that is one of the distinctions in some of the cases where you have multiple orders versus a single order. The Gauss case was a single order where the judge had ruled on both the motion to amend and the motion for summary judgment. And because there was no mention of the, the order to amend, the, the Gauss, the Court of Appeals said, a different panel obviously, that the motion, any arguments about the motion to amend had not been preserved. I think I'm actually over time. Um, you, but you may you may answer his question. Okay. So, Judge Gore, what I would submit is this is maybe of all of the issues before the court, this is the one issue that is unsettled. The Evans case is a little bit different. The Smith versus Fayetteville case, there was no objection by the uh, appellee. In the Evans case, it's a little ambiguous. And in the, um, the Smith insurance case, there was an objection. And in the Gauss case, it was absolutely an objection. We lodged an objection as soon as we saw the, actually, the issue came up, Your Honor, in connection with the, um, right after the fee award, there was some discussion where we raised for the first time, you've only appealed one thing. And we have persisted in maintaining our position that the appeal of our, the, the, the award on behalf of the caveat was not preserved. How was Evans um, un ambiguous? I'm How sorry, was the Evans case ambiguous? How, the, the Evans case it was a um, it was a, came out of the district court, as I recall, and it was a divorce and um, alimony case. Mm -hmm. And so there was an appeal by name of the alimony, but there was not an appeal by name of the divorce. And really, without any discussion at all. The court said, well, we're going to go ahead and wrap them all together and consider both the appeal of the alimony and the divorce, because I guess because they were in some ways linked. In, in the Gauss case, it was a motion to amend and a motion for summary judgment. And the court said, 
Rule 3D can be treacherous as an appellant whose notice identifies one but not all provisions of the order. Um, that's the ambiguity on that. All right. And, and counsel, yes, sir. being originally from Southeast North Carolina, I know it, some folks it might be Gauss, but it's probably Gauss. Gauss? So you Gauss. might want to throw that out there when you next time Gauss. say it. Gauss. Just Gauss. For, for the members of the Gauss family from all of Brunswick County. I'll, I'll try to remember that, Your Honor. Thank you. No well, you don't need <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much, Your Honor. I want you to know I'm going to give you a little extra time since we gave them some extra time. Thank you very much. Uh, even though the jury is supposed to decide the facts, Mr. Adams spent a lot of time arguing the facts to this court. Let me boil it down for you. I mean, the caveator played the sympathy card at trial. She claimed she had to mow her own grass. She claimed that she didn't have ownership of the house. She could went on and on and on, sympathy card. Um, the judge failed to let in even a scintilla of evidence that she had $2 million sitting in the bank. The idea of the trust may have come from Warwick or Morgan, but that's what they're paid to do. That's what you hire lawyers and accountants to do is to say, here's how you should do this, or here's the options that you have to do this, and here are the consequences of this one versus that one. Scott knew exactly what a, a will, a pour over will into the trust meant. His father had one, he was the co-executor and co-trustee, he dealt with it daily. Then he had it in his, in his 1997 will. So he knew what he was signing. Jimmy talked about the expert witnesses. Dr. Baru was the expert for the executrix who was a, a specialist in palliative care, that is near-death uh, medical care. He was impressed by the fact that the notary walked in the room and Scott started talking to her about her cheerleading. He said, you know, if he was incompetent, he would not have done that. So once again, that's for the jury, but there is lots of evidence that he was in fact competent and nobody knows what was said in that room when he signed his will, except the four people in there, all of whom testified he was competent. Counsel, what about the, uh, I guess the question I want to flesh out is the blank terms, the terms that could have been still blank in, in, the, in the trust and the will. How do you address that um, on appeal as far as making sure that we had a complete document that he knowingly and intelligently was able to sign knowing that there could have been sections missing? I would suggest to you that happens all the time. Um, attorneys that draft wills, they get calls in the middle of the night. He's in the hospital, hurry, go get it. And that's what happened here. You know, they found out he was in the hospital. And, and it's interesting, Mr. Warwick didn't call to ask if he could come. The caveator called Mr. Warwick and said, you have any important documents he needs to sign. And that's when he called Morgan and said, get me a will, a pour over will. All it says is put everything in trust. And Mr. Morgan is the only one that could testify to that. He testified when he had Scott signed the will, 
He said, this is a will, all it does is pour it into the trust, and he asked him the standard questions that are the four um, elements that I mentioned earlier. There, there's not a scintilla of evidence to contradict that. It, it, they talked about the medication, but I mean, he had one milligram of Dilaudid uh, four hours before he signed the will. Dr. Brew testified that's like having a beer before lunch. Caviator claims that Mr. Warwick, they, they talk about how he was not aware that he signed something, but Caviator testified that in October, shortly after the will was signed, when Mr. Morgan sent a copy on, um, of, his, of his will after it was signed, Caviator testified that she talked to Scott about the will and trust that Mr. Morgan emailed to him that was already signed, and he said, Mr. Warwick made me sign it. He didn't do a thing. He, by their own testimony, he read the will and trust after it was signed and chose not to change it, not to do anything. I mean, the case was poor, poor, pitiful me. That, that was the theme of the caviar's case. In fact, in the closing argument, I, I would invite you to read the transcript. In closing argument, they came very close to saying those words, poor, poor, pitiful me. They basically said that the will left her nothing. Well, it's true, but that's deceptive because he left her $1.3 million in cash. No, nothing of that came in. Um, I, I'd like to hear your thoughts on whether or not Given the changes in our state, we should adhere to a local um, uh, determination of what's a reasonable attorney's fee, as opposed to having, you know, as opposed to statewide. I can understand, you know, not you, you know, we can say we're not going to uh, we're not going to allow someone to come in and say, well, this is what they charge in New York City. Right. Okay. How do you? How would you? Uh, how, how would you explain why we should have a statewide uh, a determination of what's a reasonable rate? Well, I, I think the, the reasonable test goes to not only locality, and I think in this, in this state it should be the locality of the state, or if not, something larger than just New Hanover County. I mean, Brooks Pierce is at Greensboro. That's exactly the same distance from New Hanover County as Charlotte is. So it, it needs to incorporate a larger area. I would suggest the state because they're all licensed by the, all the attorneys in are licensed by the state, and they have a fiduciary obligation not to charge their client unreasonable fees. So um, I, I, that's a sensitive point with me because I suffered the brunt of this. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I think it's reasonable to look at an attorney's qualifications, all the Lodestar tests uh, that are used in federal court. Locality, I think you're right. It should be, it, you should keep North, New York lawyers out if they're charging $5,000 an hour. I, I think that would be unreasonable. But in North Carolina, I think that reasonableness doesn't, doesn't hinge on being from New Hanover County. Thank you. I'd like to let Ms. Mitchell have just a word, if that's all right. Just, just briefly. And Ms. Mitchell, in your, in your brevity, uh, address that Rule 3 uh, argument the council raised. The Rule 3 argument um, about how our notice of appeal was worded. I'll start there. Um, Again, I would just note that the Gauss case, and I am the one that mispronounced that in the first place, so I'll apologize for that, but the Gauss, the Gauss case um, 
it's almost the exact opposite of the Evans case, which also involved one order. Um, and the court there found that the qualifying, or the descriptive phrase used to describe that one order, I mean, the order was identified. That's what Rule 3 requires. And the fact that the order contained multiple rulings, um, it was reasonable to, to find that the, that the notice of appeal um, met the spirit of Rule 3 and um, the appellees should have been on notice that everything contained in the order was being appealed. Um, to the Bateshora case that was also mentioned, um, I would just note that that is one of those cases in the line that cites Dunn um, and has really been superseded by the 1981 amendment to Section 6. Dash 21. We would urge you to look at the Gibbons versus Cole case as an example instead. Um, and then, if you look at the order, the fee order itself that starts on on the record page 249, um, it does not contain the language that was cited as being an explanation for where the $500 cap came from. Um, I believe counsel was citing email correspondence from the court to the parties about the petitions, and that language does not appear in the order. So those were just my final points. I'm happy to answer any other questions. Any, any further questions? What's up? Thank you. Thank you very much. That concludes oral argument. We'll take this matter under advisement. Um, I want to thank you, counsel, for your excellent arguments. Uh, we may adjourn.